Hello and welcome to another episode of the Perception Podcast with me, your host, Caroline Partridge. Today, I have the immense pleasure of talking to the Chief Executive of the Nighttime Industries Association, Michael Kill, not only about his passion, nighttime economy and culture, but also about the worrying rise of conscious bystander behaviour. We examine how the long and gradual disintegration of community may be one of the reasons for the growing reluctance to become involved in trying to resolve conflict on both an individual and societal level. And how, if we are ever to remove the fear of engagement, we will have to start with education in schools and rebuilding confidence in communities and each other. Please join me as we look at life through a different lens. Hello, Michael, and thank you so much for joining us on the Perception Podcast today. It's wonderful to have you here. No, thank you. And thanks for inviting me on. Uh, uh, no, I'm really looking forward to this. It's, uh, you know, I've watched some of the others and I'm, I'm really, really excited to to sort of get involved. So Brilliant. So now before um, we start, and what I normally do with all of my guests is to really establish why and how they got to where they are and what they're doing. Um, because a little bit later, we will be talking about the, um, we will be talking about bystander, the, the, the cult bystander culture, which seems to be quite prevalent in society at the moment. But, um, but before we get to that, Please, could you just because what you do, you have you, you do a lot, <laughs> you know, you you, you have you, what what you what your work seems to cover uh, is quite huge in terms of all aspects of nighttime, nightlife, uh, entertainment, you know, music. Um, and so what so what so what drew you into that? Uh, to be honest with you, I mean it's it's a bit of a surreal one. I think many people in our industry kind of in some respects fall into it and then they go on this journey where they they have a passion for something. I always describe our industries like being a sports person, a footballer or a professional sports person that um it starts off as a, a a vocation and then becomes a passion and and i think it started for me that way i i sort of started work as a a bar person a, a, a glass collector in, on the south coast and built myself up and um over the course of time sort of progressed in different corporate environments and then i went into independence but if I'm going to be really honest, I kind of fell into it. I, I came back from London. I, I was actually going to be a physiotherapist is where I was sort of going in healthcare. So I used to do a lot of uh, healthcare respite and look after people with disabilities and, and old people who were in respite homes or holiday respite homes. Came back, worked in a, a club and a venue, enjoyed it. And uh, I just had a a knack for promoting and i started off promoting and you know after a period of time started doing openings and i just just was very good around people and and that's how my sort of roles developed and uh, and you know it's it's led me all the way to here from being a festival operator a promoter for drum and bass being a commercial director of a student union so I've done a huge amount of different roles but without a doubt the 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 role that i've undertaken here is probably been the most uh challenging 
but the most satisfying in many respects because I, I an industry that's given me so much I'm now starting to give back and being able to represent truly and, and I always say it like this is I'm so it's so important to me to represent the people at ground level because I've experienced that and I understand how challenging it is and some of the motives for people being engaged with it and also some of the 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 uh, the amount of commitment that it takes to be part of this industry whether you're working on the door whether you're working as a manager a member of bar staff a promoter a dj there is a huge amount of work and expertise in the background that people really do understate or underestimate and i think my my path has been uh, exciting um uh, has been scary i've been you know afraid at times especially the start of the pandemic when i was sat in front of a uh, a virtual screen uh, talking on sky news for the first time which was the start of some i think they estimated when they looked at it something like 19,000 interviews over the course of the pandemic from when we started so um you know i i've definitely done my shift up to the point that i think the most interviews i did in one day was something like about 46 interviews from you know, 5.30 in the morning on BBC World News all the way through till 11, 12 at night. So, you know, that alongside representing the industry and government and uh, within the media and keeping that cycle of challenge and change throughout that very difficult period for people. So I've learned and grown a huge amount. I learn every day and, uh, uh, you know, I just do something because I have a huge passion for our industry and I'm not willing to... uh, uh, allow it to be driven or or laid bare by people making uh, the wrong decisions without an informed sort of understanding of some of the challenges and impacts. So that's what really drives me. Um, but if I'm going to be really honest, I kind of fell into it and it is something I had a passion for and I drove forward and I'm just one of those tenacious people that can't let go of something that I enjoy. So here I am, um, you know, and I'll stay as long as I am productive and I can deliver something which gives back to the industry, which I hope I've done over the period of time during the pandemic and, and will continue to do and, and to the point that I, I feel that someone else would need to step into my shoes. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I think, yes, <laughs> yes, you have. Um had I mean, you've had challenges. The industry has had enormous challenges over over the course of the pandemic. And just before we continue, actually, do you think that? How do you think that those challenges? And do you think those challenges have been overcome? I think the the biggest issue that we had is when this pandemic came in. We were in a position where, particularly, nighttime economy uh, and culture. Mm didn't really have a really strong footing at the table, particularly things like electronic music or counterculture against live or hospitality against nighttime economy and some of those late night businesses. So there was a huge amount of work going into support lobbying, but there was a huge amount of work going into educating policymakers and decision makers on what we were. And, you know, that's that presented challenges because it was very easy to fold electronic music into live and culture and same as it was easy to put a nightclub or a live music space in hospitality where we know the core of hospitality is a pub, restaurants, hotels, mm-hmm. different nuances to operation, both from a cultural perspective and from those different types of operations. So 
I don't think we've overcome our position. The one thing that we've done is instead of being self-sufficient in the last 30 years for many of these businesses, we've realized how important it is to have a strong seat at the table. And what we've done in the trade organization that I represent is we've now got a strong seat at the table and we're able to influence through different ways, whether it be media or uh, political lobbying or activism, a way forward. And we've made some huge changes from you know, the £2.6 billion, which we got paid out through the FCA for business interruption insurance to um, the COVID recovery fund, where we managed to get electronic music and sound system culture as part of the cultural funding that the government, um, you know, put forward, but missed out a huge sector, which was not really considered at that point. So we've had some huge wins, but we've had some huge challenges and it, and it's ongoing as you know, because we're not out of crisis yet. There's, there's more ahead. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's, I mean, and, and do you think also with the pandemic that, and I mean, this goes, this feeds in a little bit into bystander uh, culture in, in a, in a way, do you think that, um, this has strengthened disparate groups you know th- this this adversity has created a stronger or a more united i should say a more united force i think i think for industry perspective i would say that the community has come together i think there's a yeah. lot of people in our industry that were sworn enemies that had a mutual cause yeah. to move forward and collectively we're in a stronger place the challenge that we had is as we came out of things like the pandemic, we had some huge challenges with things like um, uh, residents not being used to noise. So when the nighttime economy reopened and people and, and they'd had months of quiet and people started to go out again ferociously, you know, that noise started to resonate and there wasn't a consideration with authorities and businesses and residents that this was, you know, the norm prior this and they'd they'd almost been given a bit of a reprieve for a bit of time but the bigger thing that i think is really important to highlight here is the uh the behavioral aspects mm-hmm. you know uh, we had eight hundred and fifty thousand new 18 year olds come of age during the pandemic of which they didn't understand their limitations they weren't uh sort of bedded into nighttime economy behaviors socially you know they didn't have the ability over the course of those few years to really start to understand and uh, and grasp some of the challenges or laws of the street in some respects laws of the licensed environment to to be able to sort of look at moderation and look at the way that they manage themselves and it was almost like they came out ferociously and uh, and we were definitely subject to some of the challenges out there and and there were a lot of frustrations people you know not being able to see their family losing family um you know there were frustrations from young people to older and when you talk about things like covid passports there are a lot of barriers that mm. we had to overcome and a, and a very quick pivot in terms of the uh, the rules of engagement on a week-on-week, month-on-month basis, which was hugely challenging for the sector. So, you know, I mean, the phone calls I had for interpretation of licensing, um, mm. you know, just, I mean, I, I think at one point I had a city call me and said, you know, can you speak to DCMS or a government department to let them know that within this city they can have more, more than 60 people in a pub? because they'd misinterpreted the legislation. So there were there were lots of challenges that were going on in the background and lots of support and 
I, I mean, it, it was literally a 24-7 job. I think I had a WhatsApp group of, uh, I think I had about 20 WhatsApp groups at the height with about <laughs> 4,000 businesses. And I think our challenge was, is how do we manage that on an ongoing process? And I, and I don't, sometimes I don't think people realise the infrastructure and the processes that we mm. had to go to support people both from a mental health perspective as well as a business perspective because it really really pushed people to the edge and you know as we've we've heard there have been people have got many different opinions on covid we've seen the covid inquiry at the moment and whether it was right or wrong and what people did mm. and it it you know it fragmented communities in many respects there were people that lost friendships over different views on um you know vaccination to passports to you know there were lots of things that you know from artists who didn't want to play in environments where a covid passport or a a, a, a vaccination yeah. was required so there was a huge fragmentation that needed to be managed at best and you know even myself i mean talking to some you know considerable artists that refusing to play or refusing to want to understand what was going on was mm. part of my job as well so i probably in my own head, understate how much engagement I had with so many different people over the course of the time. And I'm still meeting people that I haven't met uh, apart from virtually on a week on week basis that I've helped or, you know, got them through a difficult time. So it is very rewarding, but it was hugely challenging at the time. And, um, you know, it definitely pushed myself and my family to the edge at, at points, but, yeah. you know, kept strong and it's it's been for the benefits at the back end. Wow. Honestly, that's yeah, yeah, wow. That it was quite an extraordinary, extraordinary, unprecedented. I mean, that word gets bandied around a lot, but really that was that a period of unprecedented kind of behaviors, actually, mm. measures and behaviors and a whole new way of kind of existing that I think was actually very frightening for for a lot of people on lots yeah. of different levels, uh, you know, financially, emotionally, mentally. Um, and I think what you were saying there, you, it, it completely right about the 18-year-olds, this new kind of cohort of 18-year-olds going out and kind of being unleashed in... Yeah. Uh, into you know nightlife uh into the night um <laughs> and and yeah. their behaviors you know and and not really actually knowing how to uh behave and also having i suppose lots of kind of suppressed and repressed energy causing um i suppose uh causing a uh I don't want to say trouble. It's not trouble. You know, it's it's, it's causing. No, it, it's, it, I, I mean, the reality is, is you know, you've you've got eight hundred and fifty thousand new eighteen-year-olds who have not seen their friends, have not mm. engaged, not had social interaction, uh, have you know, have had limited opportunity to express themselves outside of the home and their own family. Um, you know, haven't looked at things like alcohol or, mm. you know, looked at sort of pushing the boundaries of their limitations. You know, when you talk about the context of drug use and all these sort of things, yeah. it's almost an explosion. And, and and I think the thing is, is the government didn't realise it as much as the industry and policing and the local government side who do did very clearly understand 
that there there was going to be this tidal wave of potential that could compromise us and we and we saw it and we still today still see that resonating position where antisocial behavior as you saw with uh, things like the home office coming out with the criminal justice side of things when we talk about you know drug use and the misuse of drugs side of things becoming you know prevalent and a challenge alcohol at home mm-hmm. you've got to remember that we what we did really in the course of three years is set people up at home to be able to speak to their their family and their friends virtually they could order food they could order drink they could entertain we did everything possible to create an environment where they could do what we do externally internally and we then almost of a flick of a switch had to then switch it the other way and get people to come out and what was really sad to see is we didn't think about switching on the infrastructure the lights of the london underground wasn't considered mm. in terms of the night tube at the time that we switched on nighttime economy so i think there were there were some huge lessons to learn but there there were some huge challenges and some really understated short-sighted um yeah. sort of realities that um you know, and, and I'm not sure whether the COVID inquiry really get to anywhere or do anything off the no. back of it. I think it's a lot of money that of of rhetoric and positioning and blame. And for me, I think what we need to do is just put something robust together that that takes the learnings and moves them forward. So, in any eventuality of it happening again, we have a we have a robust structure to work to. But yeah. you know, I think the problem is is we're we're in a position where. There, is, there are so many misconceptions and misinformation about everything. I don't think anyone really knows what the truth is at the moment. And I don't think the COVID inquiry is really going to help any of that, apart from possibly political manoeuvring, given the fact that there's a general election on the horizon, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's a whole nother episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and when you were, uh, and what you mentioned there, I think, when you talked about community, when uh, earlier and and the kind of fragmentation of community and this kind of leads into i think this what what we wanted to talk about is, uh, in terms of bystander the evolution of the bystander culture yeah. is that with communities there and shared values there seems to be maybe with this disintegration that is then reflected in this behavior where people not wanting to 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 interject or to place them or to put themselves forward to try and resolve issues you know you 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 kind of see and it's quite frightening uh in terms of you know in terms of uh, social behavior how people when there is something is happening people are standing with mobile phones filming yeah what is going on it's almost it's it's an opportunity for social media as opposed to an opportunity for a human interaction and people to actually try and resolve conflict oh. I mean, I, I, I've got some very strong views on this, and, I, and I'm sure that you've read some of the things that I've said about it. But look, I always draw back to this. In the early days, in the sort of 80s, 90s, when they used to do old school raves in different sort of environments, not to suggest that that's the way forward. But what we did have then was a community that looked after each other. There was a bohemian aspect of people considering, um, you know, 
humanity uh, amongst society so that there was there wasn't a fear if if you were going out to a rave or a party in a field or whatever you're doing and someone fell over or hurt themselves they'd be picked up by the community in the group and they'd be looked after um and we've lost a lot, a lot of that and we talk about industry and societal change through industry um authorities and stakeholders but we miss probably the most important part of it which is the community the the actual people that interact mm -hmm. we see in many cases that there is almost a fear of engagement as much as there is this exasperated sort of exhibitionist piece when someone's in trouble and filming and and that's the sort of social media element but mm -hmm. i always draw back to this um when you have conscious bystanders or people who are fear or worried about stepping in just in case i always draw back to things like festivals when 500 600 people walk away from a field and leave their tents in a field oh. for someone else to pick it up um you know i think we have this attitude where um someone else will do it and i think that is somewhat of a nurture uh position um and I, i mean i've got six six children from six up to 25 and you know i definitely see the differences wow. in, the, in the yeah i know wow that's, your, that's your own festival <laughs> <laughs> well yeah no 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 completely but um you know you've you've, you've got to realize that there is a very very different attitude these days uh to engagement and you know we've been talking wholeheartedly about manifestos around nighttime economy but we've been also talking uh, around the un directives and and trying to mold them into a more community guide so that we can take the community with us in terms of understanding where the challenge is and you know we need the community to respect and understand the boundaries in terms of people i mean that goes without saying in terms of the protection of of uh, women and girls and um mm. you know, when you talk about sexual harassment when you talk about sustainability all of these things are about people making a conscious effort to do more and be more considered and more broadly in terms of the community and you know the industry can only go so far society as a whole need to collectively come together and that's where communities become really important and the one thing that things like our industry do is we shape communities very well um we've seen that by the way that electronic music or live music culture makes a difference where influencers can make a huge difference mm -hmm. to where they influence people so you know we have an opportunity through the cycle of different generations to start to change the impetus and the focus and we are starting to see the likes of gen z more be more considered in their approach but we still have this conscious bystander position which i think is a real legacy challenge for us that needs to be uh, challenged at every point in an every way and and we need to we need to motivate people in the right way to do it but you know we've got some way off actually changing that cycle of community attitudes to ensure that we're all working off the same vein mm. uh, we're not allowing things to happen within our communities which are unacceptable there were different ways of stopping it in the past now what we need to do is collectively stand together and be strong with it alongside industry you know things like drink spiking and these sort of these heinous mm. crimes that perpetrate we need people to let them understand that that's not acceptable and we need every single person to stand side by side to say that um but that's you know we need that attitude to change uh, 
them. It's no longer a joke, sexual harassment and having a laugh or saying something rudely to someone, you know, whether it be male or female or, uh, you know, is is a really important piece. And, and I think we lack that at the moment and we need to go back to grassroots where communities look after communities and uh, the industry then supports those communities to ensure that the messages are clear and we work together and we start to build a, a stronger sort of future amongst society, I think. Sorry, that was a bit of a stand on a soapbox moment. No, no, it wasn't. Hey, look, I'm I'm just pulling up my soapbox to join you <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, mm, well, we can look at the government. We can look to the government, actually, you know, if we want to talk about uh, – because the next thing I was actually going to ask you is about where does this reluctance to intervene come from? Mm. Um, what are some of the factors? And I just think with what is happening in the world now, you know, the government is completely reluctant to intervene in any way, yep. you know, and and you kind of think how, how <laughs> you know, how can, how can that be an example to society to say, well, we just, we're bystanders here, you know, um, uh, against something that is actually completely wrong. Mm. I mean, um, what do you think, what do you think then that's uh, some of the, some of the factors that, um, that, I mean, obviously people are afraid of getting hurt, you know, when they, they fear for their own, for their own safety, but, well, I think I think there is a level of, of fear of vilification uh, in many, many respects. I mean, if you uh, the amount of people that step forward and intervene for the right reasons, but societally uh, maybe, and and you know what it's like with change. Sometimes it, it starts with one person stepping forward to to being honest, and sometimes the hardest thing to be is be that individual who's willing to point out the wrong amongst many people who uh, know the answers, but but fear the retribution for those answers. So mm. I, I think we we have a societal a, a societal challenge around uh, people's uh, perception or people's concern over their own personal perception and potentially not, not being completely honest with themselves. And, and, and you know, we, we talk about this and, I, and I'll give you some examples. I mean, it's like uh, fighting the police forces which have unconscious bias to some black music culture sort of mm-hmm. environments um and the fact that while we all sit around the table and everyone knows what's happening um you know uh, and and you've got the things like grime artists or um drill artists which are you know really important outlets for certain communities to be able to you know aspire and be an active part of and and the growth of it in the commercial world has been phenomenal but the conscious bias of presenting those musics within environments that the the only way that uh, enforcement can deal with it is by removing it rather than trying to ingratiate themselves with the culture and understanding and work alongside it and you know when we talk about dance music everyone it's a conscious bias around drug use when you talk about you know reggae culture you know there there is this this thing that we're not willing to reach across the divide and work with some of these these communities to understand and ingratiate and develop and 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 just work alongside and I, and I think sometimes we we are and 
you know, I'm not sure whether it's the culture within this country or uh, the fact that we just have a very robust and sort of bubble-like approach to some of the challenges faced societally that certain communities, um, you know, uh, are, are sort of, I wouldn't say challenged with, but are part of. But I think there's just a lot of work that we need to do in terms of educating a broad section of these stakeholders, including policing and government, that just live in this bubble and don't understand what the real world is on the ground and on the street where you know culture is dynamic and fused and exciting and mm. you know and, and there's a lot of suppression around it so for me i i get frustrated with um the lack of desire to want to understand more and work alongside people and the development of new culture and new music and uh new sort of movements uh, i think we we are very rigid sometimes in the way that we approach things and and that's kind of made us uh, a little bit sort of more risk or harm reduction based rather than celebratory in terms of some of the amazing culture that we represent across the the cities and different regions um, in the UK, um, which is probably where my frustrations come from. And, and you know, where in some respects you also have this fear of being out or vilification comes in. There is, can I, can't I, it's almost a, a deviance movement that's presented in some respects, which uh, is is hugely challenging, but we are breaking those boundaries, but it's not an overnight process. Yeah. I think one of the essential things really though is, is communication and being willing to communicate when you're talking about these various kind of stakeholders, you know, and, the, and there is a lot of action, you know, people think that to, 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 show that they're doing something they have to act they have to take action without actually consideration as you say consideration or communication and yeah it's and i suppose then that that comes into also in terms of bystander behavior if you go rushing in without yeah. considering or or properly understanding what is happening that can also create harm yeah um but also not doing anything <laughs> and as you say just you know I, I think i think the thing about it is and, and we always talk about it in the and conscious bystander is a you know people worry about getting in trouble or or engaging mm. in something which is going to draw them into a situation so there is that vilification thing but there is a fear of engaging in something that potentially is going to compromise them and their safety and in the same respect you know when we talk about policing for instance and um uh, some of the sort of challenges within there that there, there needs to be a level of education in policing that starts to understand what's going on and some of the work that we're doing is around educating uh police officers around cultural differences mm. um so we're working on and, and i give this example if you're an fia formula one director looking after racing you need to understand what racing is about or you can't enforce against it you can't direct against it you're fully informed so so how do we expect all these police officers to particularly licensing officers who don't understand our industry to then enforce against it but not really have a clue about the nuances around it so a lot of work we're doing is around them understanding industry and also understanding the changing cultural environments that we're having to manage um so there's a lot of work that's going in and there has been an acceptance there is a void in terms of that cultural sort of understanding 
And one of the things that we do when we sort of we're looking at starting to do is having four pictures of four different dance floors with a mix of different ethnicities and groups and asking them to pick out what music is being played in which room without hearing the music. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's great. So um, it then really sort of starts to bring about questions of of a natural unconscious bias, and yeah. uh, you know, yeah. and it really sort of kickstarts and let them understand that not everything is as it seems to be, and yeah. there. It know, takes a it takes a perception shift to yeah. be able to understand and i think this is the 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 really important thing isn't it it's just we have to all of the everything that we've grown up with from you know actually from conception has affected us and formed us into who we are yeah. and it's actually understand and that's fine but it's actually understanding that that then colors every single thing we do whether we are aware of it or not. And as you say, with unconscious bias, no, we're not aware of it. And we we do see these, these um, responses that are very much uh, based in a, per- a perception of something that if you don't really understand it, as you've, you know, as you've said, you know, it's, <laughs> it's really difficult to take informed action. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I did a, um, there were a few things I've done recently that have really sort of expanded my mind. And I, I sat and did something for something called a behavioral analysis um, conference. Um, and what they asked me to do is present, you know, the the sort of skills around security, door security, working on the door. And the way I presented it was the most understated skill for door security is actually watching people's body language and the way they move. And, it's massively understated and possibly understated in terms of some of the people that work within the industry of how effective they are at second guessing people and, you know, looking at, you know, nervousness and uh, fear and all the other things that come along with it. And the interesting part is I was doing the presentation with uh, a gentleman who looked after the Israeli um, embassy uh, mm-hmm. in uh, several countries and does the, and he was blown away by, uh, how effective door security were at continually through continual practice, second guessing people coming into a premises. And he really didn't realize and, uh, you know, how important that role was and how understated it was within the sector as a whole and whether it should be expanded upon. But when you look at those sort of things, it's, it's, you know, the perception of door security is that they are, there to throw something or rough someone up but what they don't realize is the fire the health and safety the security the license the you know perceptions of people coming into the premises attitudes etc mm. all which are sort of incumbent on this role and you know it, it was really good to sit there and i think the realization amongst some really strong professionals policing and international uh sort of representatives was somewhat blown away by the fact that they didn't really consider it as as much as we had presented it within the presentation. So, you know, sometimes it 
takes for for me and and others to you know in self-realization start to talk about some of the challenges and perceptions out there and start to change those in different environments and Mm. that was one sort of epiphany moment that i thought was amazing to hear from professionals that hadn't really considered even resourcing from those environments for people to go on to you know high level security roles Mm. and isn't it refreshing actually and hopeful gives you hope if people are 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 sitting there and they're and they are awake enough to be able to uh register because that you know you you do have people who will anything they're kind of like nope this is the way it is but actually that people are there able to register what's going on and understand that it can that is a perception shift and it's fantastic um and so is there anything that we can do to engage without fear to um i mean i personally and because of the way that i've been brought up and because of my you know i will when anything is always going off i will i will step in but very calmly i mm. will step in and i will and i and i know you know i've done I, i'm a, trained as a mediator uh, but I also go in, and before I did my training, I would kind of go in with really, really calmly and really gently, and um, and it does help being a woman mm-hmm. go into uh, you know uh, into conflict and help people to calm down because also you you do kind of see you do see that, um, and this is I'm just talking on you know kind of a, a sort of street level. But yeah. you you do find that when people kick off in a huge way, it's not actually about the altercation. The <clears throat> what the the anger doesn't come from that. The, the anger that altercation is a trigger from something that is already lying dormant in them, or or ready to kind of explode. Yeah. What what would you say on a on a on a micro level or on a macro level, if there's anything that we can do to. I, I think, I think it's all, I mean, I mean, look, there are s- several channels to this and, um, you know, we've got a long way to go in terms of, and I, and I think this comes and I, and I talk interestingly enough from, I've got a daughter who's 15 and goes to school. And I think this starts with some of the school environments and the behaviors that are represented in schools mm-hmm. um, and the challenges that are faced, um, the social media mechanisms, the the behaviors on social media, et cetera. We, we've got some way off to, to, to get that to change. But, you know, it's like you say, we, we need to look at that community and societal position and it's got to start with education in schools for me. I can't, you know, when mm-hmm. we talk about uh, things like misogyny, when you talk about sexual harassment, I mean, you know, God bless my, my daughter is a, you know, beautiful young girl and, um, you know, the misogyny and the way that she's talked to in school is phenomenal from year seven and eight onwards. So the, the youngsters Still- have, yeah, the youngsters of today, and it's frightening, um, you know, the 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 amount of challenges and the way that they're talked to and, and the, the way that they're, they're, you know, openly talking about sexual expression and things like this is is somewhat frightening. And that's not to be approved in any way, shape or form, but it, it's in many respects sets the tone for the future and potentially 
presents some of the attitudes and approaches in the future. And I think we've got a huge challenge with education and the cycle of new cohorts of students coming through. And we need to start to address that in particular. Um, But the short term macro sort of position is, you know, we need to give people confidence to step in. Mm. We need to give them confidence that it's not going to end in vilification. We need to give them confidence they're not going to end. They're going to be standing alongside others within the community. A collective is stronger than an individual. We've learned that during the pandemic more than anybody else. Um, And we need to go back to bare basics, you know, of, you know, us collectively standing together to stop wrongdoing within society as part of a community. I mean, I, I, I know this sounds a bit odd and it makes me sound like a sort of uh, drawing back to the sort of 50s or 60s, but there no, was this, not there was, all. There was this coherent drive against wrongdoing or moral principles which were upheld by the community. And what we seem to have lost is those moral uh, sort of community standards um, uh, across many of the sort of cities and towns and small areas in, in, you know, if you remember, you don't, you know, they were, they were very moral standards within society. And I think we've lost a lot of those. And that's probably one of the challenges that we have, how we re-implement that is another thing. And they were in many respects, not the right benchmarks to implement that in different regions, but let's be honest about it. It did make a difference in terms of the way that people were spoken to and were part of communities and respected and mm. you know that, that has somewhat been lost and, and we do miss a part of that in the same way that the community would pick people up and look after each other so i think the moral standing uh that we experienced many years ago has been lost and needs to be reevaluated and re-looked at and i don't think legislation or stronger laws are going to make a difference to that that just seems to push back the community needs to play an active part in changing uh the the perceptions of engagement as we you know obviously yeah. start this conversation yeah. and that's a long process starting with schools all the way through and that's going to take a cycle of generations to to overcome but you know there's there's no harm in starting now <laughs> yeah no i think that's so fantastic what you say because it has gone from we to me Exactly. And that whole journey, which, yeah, and I'm on my soapbox now of Thatcherism, the I, <laughs> the big I, yeah. um, you know, there's an I in Dick. Yeah, but there, you know, it's like it's gone, it's gone from this, it's gone from, as you say, this collective and the community and a collective consciousness and understanding that something that affects one of us affects all of us. And I really, you know, I really believe that. And I and I think it was the disintegration of unions, the disintegration of communities, the disintegrate, the active disintegration, and the movement away from, you know, uh, a, a, a collectivism, because divide and conquer. You know, yeah. it's like it's easier to control the masses if they're I mean, if they're if they're splintered. I mean, the interesting part. I mean, how many times did you hear that? Uh, you know, in the north, you can leave your back door unlocked. Um, yeah. You can go door and borrow a cup of sugar. You know, I mean, uh, you know, in my mum's day, that's that's what 
it used to be about. Communities used to come together to support each other through hardship and challenge. We've just gone through some of the hardest times in terms of crisis. Could you go next door and ask someone for a cup of sugar? Probably not. Could you leave your back door open? Probably not. So it just really exemplifies the different eras that we live in and how the mm-hmm. uh, the morals within society have changed, particularly in communities have changed. And there is a lack of trust and confidence in each other. Um, and I think that's probably the benchmark for us changing perceptions is building that back up and building yeah. a level of trust amongst communities uh, where they all stand together is, is the key to this. And as you say, it's not an open night process because we've gone too far the other way at the moment yeah yeah but on that note that positive fantastic note of collectivism and unity i'd just like to say wow what a pleasure michael it has been an absolute pleasure to speak to you about your passion um and to actually just you know, look at things in a different way, which is great. Hopefully, when people listen to this, dear listeners, when you listen, you you know you they'll gain a, a different perspective um, uh, on the on the nighttime industry and also what we were just talking about there about this idea of uh, of the conscious bystander. But um, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. You know, it's been great. And it's it's been great to open up the conversation into different channels. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much. Really, really appreciate it. Really enjoyed yeah. it. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's great. And if people, I will put your contact details, obviously, well, you know, your website, or if people want to find out more about you, could you just tell us your, uh, where they can, where they can read more, read all about it, where can yeah, sure. Um, uh, my our, our email. I run something called the Nighttime Industries Association. Get us on uh, www.ntia.co.uk, um, and there are contact details if you want to get more involved or support us in any way. But uh, welcome the opportunity to to develop the conversation and speak more to more people. Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you very Brilliant. much. Brilliant speaking to you. And thank you, everyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this episode of the Perception Podcast. Um, Please like and follow and share. Do share with um, people that you think may benefit from listening to this. And uh, I will speak to you next week on another episode of the Perception Podcast. Thank you.